Hi, we're going to get started. I'm Joe Furley. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jesse Stoller. I'm a policy associate of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute, and thank you for coming out this afternoon. Our topic this afternoon is what we're really excited to present, and it's building a billion ton bioeconomy. On July 12th, the Bioeconomy Technologies Office, which is part of the U.S. Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, released a new report, Volume 1 of the 2016 Billion Ton Report. Through these billion ton reports, the Department of Energy periodically assesses the ability of the United States to sustainably produce a billion tons of renewable non-food biomass. The 2016 report builds on past reports from new data and analyses, including new feedstocks such as algae and energy crops, a new cost analysis, and a significantly expanded look at sustainability criteria. Uh, today we're going to touch on the sustainability criteria, but it will also be a significant focus of volume two, which is expected later this year. Today we will also hear about how the 2016 billion ton report furthers the federal bioeconomy vision. The bioeconomy vision is led by the Biomass Research and Development Board, which is an interagency effort among seven agencies and the White House. According to the Biomass R&D Board's projections, an annual supply consisting of a billion tons of sustainable biomass in the United States would provide 1.1 million direct jobs and contribute 250 billion annually to the economy. Utilizing this biomass would also reduce domestic greenhouse gas emissions by 400 million metric tons per year. Today we'll be able to dip our toe into these reports, so, so to speak. Um, the report is quite long. I think Allison brought up a big, big copy with her. Um, so I urge you to go online and browse the reports to learn more. I would also be remiss not to mention that these reports are presented. The work of dozens of individuals, both at DOE and USDA, as well as at EPA and other agencies, universities, industry, NGOs, and other stakeholders over the past several years. That said, these reports are at the end of the conversation on the bioeconomy, but add additional depth to our understanding of how biomass can be used to meet multiple objectives to produce fuels, electricity, and bioproducts to help lower greenhouse gas emissions domestically, to reduce U.S. dependence on petroleum, and to foster rural economic development. So first up today, we're going to hear from Dr. Allison Gosang. Dr. Gosang is the Program Manager for Advanced Agile Systems and Feedstock Supply and Logistics for the Bioenergy Technology Office at the U.S. Department of Energy. Her areas of focus include terrestrial and agile feedstock research assessment, feedstock logistics, algae biology and cultivation, feedstock conversion, as well as techno-economic and life cycle analyses. She also serves on the Biomass R&D Board, and she co-chairs the Biomass R&D Initiative Interagency Working Group on Feedstock Logistics. Allison? Hey, good evening, Jesse. So, as Jesse said, my name is Allison Gossain. I oversee a couple of programs within the Biology Technologies Office, our algae program, as well as our feedstock supply the offices of our feedstock program that I come to you today to talk to you about a recent release that we, we had last week of our 2016 Billion Ton Report. I'm speaking on behalf of a large team of, um, of researchers as well as um, other contributors to this report. Um, unfortunately, our primary project uh, manager, Mark Ellis, was, was not able to, to be here today Association of Agriculture Engineers Conference uh, down in Florida. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to be able to answer any technical questions. 
questions you might have, but you might have to save, save a few of those for Bernie's return. So as Jesse mentioned, the 2016 Million Ton Report is the third in a, a series of reports that the Department of Energy um, started in 2005. Um, the original report was, was focused on can the U.S. sustainably produce a billion tons of biomass annually? There wasn't a year associated with it or a cost associated with, with that biomass, um, but the, the emphatic answer was yes, there is a potential nationally to produce a significant amount of biomass. Uh, about six years later, in 2011, there was an update. And uh, we attach some uh, costs associated with that biomass. We created some cost curves at a given um, price point, how, how much biomass could be uh, acquired um, at, the, at the farm gate. Um, and we also um, dug a little deeper into a, a time associated with that. So in a 2030 time frame, we identified over a million tons of biomass that, that could be produced within the U.S. annually. For this 2016 update, we added a little more um, detail to that, broke down uh, the feedstocks into different types of energy crops, which grass and this campus and, and so forth, and took that, that cost projection from the farm gate to, to the edge of a, of a, of a buyer refinery. So I'll go into a little more, more detail about the 2016 report now. So over the course of doing um, you know, many, many different analysis, we really feel confident that there is enormous uh, U.S. potential to reduce biomass on the order of more than a million tons annually. So every time we do this analysis, we, we get more confident in this, in this number. Um, we, we really feel that doing this kind of work um, supports commercialization um, in a lot of ways. We hear from our stakeholders that, that they're they can increase confidence from their investors as well as um, from uh, the technology developers when they are able to dig into this, this analysis and look at an individual region what the potential could be uh, for that region to, to produce biomass that could be converted to multiple end uses. With this report and the subsequent volume two that I'll speak of um, that's, that's coming up hopefully later this year, we really wanted to outline um, a, a sustainable production and, and, and try to get at defining what sustainable might be. Of course, if we're going to deliver on this promise of, a, of an advanced energy future, we need to make sure that we are relying upon biomass for multiple uses. We're, we're doing that in an environmentally appropriate way. And this is going to really ensure that the clean energy solutions that we may, may develop are really viable in the long term. So for this 2016 report, we had a few specific research questions um, looking at, of course, the economic availability of that biomass with a given cost, how much biomass would be, um, would be generated um, uh, to, and demand to be produced. Also, what's the economic availability of that biomass all the way to a buyer refinery? Now, the analysis is, is end-use um, agnostic. We're, we're not identifying specific end-uses that that biomass may be used for. Julia from comparing the Valerie a little bit about another um, setting work that used, used some of the billion time um, results. But for this report, we did want to look at what is the cost associated with moving that biomass from the farm where it's grown um, to a, a buyer refinery. Again, we, for the first time, included algae, as well as specifically called out miscanthus, switchgrass, energy cane, 
crops a little more granularity and looked at what the potential supply of those individual crops um, may be into the future. So here's a schematic of the biomass supply chain that helps to explain how the reports take out. Now I have it up here, it's over 400 pages. It is of course available online and I'll, I'll speak to that in a minute. But we have several chapters here that are focused on the, the production side. So what's going on at the farm? Um, we have individual chapters on herbaceous energy crops, as well as forage resources, waste, um, and algae. And then um, moving from that harvest to the fire refinery, we have chapter six, which the title of that is actually to the fire refinery, looking at the logistics costs. And then delivery and, and processing um, is also included here. We, we took a very um, a conservative and journalistic approach to pre-processing, densifying um, the biomass, pelletizing it, um, and, and looked at the costs associated with doing that to, to serve as a, a proxy for what the pre-processing costs might be, um, moving that biomass from its raw state of the farm to the biorefinery. <coughs> So some of the um, key messages from the report um, that I want to make sure that I get across to you is uh, the 2016 million, million ton report is, is really policy agnostic. It's not the resources is not reliant upon individual policies. Um, it does not evaluate the impacts of potential new policies that may come online, and it's also um, not specific to any given end use. The, this, this billion ton resource that we talk about has, um, we've already met all of the needs for food, forage, feed, fiber, and export before the additional potential is added, added on top. Um, so we're making sure that we're prioritizing the existing needs for that biomass first and evaluating the potential. We took this economic supply curve approach, so given um, a price point, there are, there's an amount, amount of volume associated with that. Um, we try to be pretty, very conservative with our assumptions on environmental sustainability, and I'll, I'll detail a few of those for you as well. We have two volumes. The first, volume one, which we released last week, is really well aligned and parallel to our 20, 2005 and 2011 reports. Um, in terms of an economic analysis of resource potential. Our volume two report is going to look at what are the environmental potential benefits and implications of um, producing that much biomass annually. I want to make it very clear, this is a, a tremendous effort. We have 65 authors and over 105 people that are acknowledged for being part of the report. Um, here's some of the contributors you can see here. We have federal agencies, environmental NGOs, national laboratories. Oak Ridge National Lab is the primary author on this report. They work closely with um, many other uh, stakeholders, and we have some private companies that, that participated as well. And multiple reviewers that participated in a workshop that we held. Um, last December, um, they came, they heard um, of our, our research approach, some of our preliminary results, gave us feedback and input when we were in the middle of, of, of drafting the report. We also had reviewers that uh, went through a, a more final version of the document. You can see here, covering a wide, wide 
wide variety of sectors, um, as, as well as uh, stakeholder interests and needs. Um, and that we're going to hear comments um, from, from these reviewers. And, and they're really largely positive along the whole um, timeline. Really analytically intensive, trying to put this kind of product together. Um, I won't go deep into all the different models that we use, but just showing you that, that we had models that were helping with the, um, the analytics around the agricultural resource, the forestry resource. Um, we had separate models for timber, um, timber supply chains, as well as looking at um, climate projections, and of course that has a dramatic potential impact on, on um, energy crop yields, as well as um, a logistics model, the um, SCM supply characterization model. Relying on a lot of data for um, our, our, our baseline approach was um, uh, utilizing the USDA agricultural baseline and forest service data. Um, we, we utilized a, the current resource analysis was based upon EIA data. Um, I've already mentioned the climate model. We have Oregon State soils data from USDA. And the Center Regional Feedstock Partnership, I want to draw special attention to that. So for the last seven years, the Bioenergy Technology Office has partnered with um, USDA Agricultural Research Service, as well as um, universities, primarily land-grant universities, to maintain 100 field trials for dedicated energy crops as well as forest over. This has given us invaluable data to, to help us in our assumptions that, that show up in the Bloomington report about how these energy crops will, will grow in the field in a variety of geographies, under different management conditions, and how we can expect yields to improve over time um, as we move out into the future. Really important to have uh, ground truth data when we put together an analysis like this. So probably no, no surprise to you that biomass is the largest source of domestic renewable energy. Our currently used resources um, in a 2014 time frame are about 365 million dry tons. Uh, primarily forestry and wood, as well as corn grain, but even the solid waste does make up a, a, a good percentage of that, about, about 30 million dry tons annually. And this has been the truth since 2003. Um, Biomass has been the dominant source of the U.S. market, um, really exceeding hydroelectric generation. Um, first generation ethanol, of course, really prompted um, corn grain production in the U.S. Um, for that use. And uh, we use about 10% renewables in the U.S. and about half of that is coming from biomass for transportation, industrial, or residential um, uses. So that's currently, but out into the future, you can see here, this is just a, a word cloud of our, our billion ton analysis for a 2040 time frame at $60 price point. This canvas was stressed over, and we're really dominating the, the um, feedstock supply mix out in the 2040 time frame. Um, so we're really seeing that herbaceous energy crops and stover are going to uh, be significant leaders um, in, in the, the mix as we move forward. Forestry and waste resources you can see they're showing up here, hardwood, softwood, mixed wood, paper, and paperboard, all um, pretty large um, contributors to, to the mix. a map of, of that same um, time frame, 2040. And they, um, every 
over 300 of them uh, in the lower 48 states are contributing uh, to the biomass potential. It, it, and in this um, uh, conservative case, it's, it, this map shows about 826 million tons. Um, this is supply per square mile. Um, and anything you see in blue is equivalent to what would be needed to supply a 800,000 dry centimeter facility, so a, a good-sized fire refinery. Um, so that helps you to kind of identify where, where there is significant resources here. Um, I want to point out $60 a ton is just um, a, a reference price. There's nothing magical about $60. Um, that's just what, what we choose to use as an illustrative example of, of the resource. So the entire report, as well as um, quite, quite a lot of interactive features, are available through the Bioenergy Knowledge Discovery Framework. I strongly encourage you to go and check it out. Um, you can download individual chapters of the report, you can dig deep into um, some of the maps, turn on and turn off uh, different uh, feedstocks, look at different time frames and price points. If you do look at the, um, the actual hard copy of the report, you can see this um, uh, monitor image up in the corner. Uh, anywhere you see in the report uh, an icon of a monitor, that's where you can go into the PDF and dig deeper into the drafts and maps and, and, and interact with them and play around. So, absolutely check out bioenergypdf.net backslash building time. So a question I get a lot is how does the 2016 report relate to the 2011 report? They're, they're actually incredibly similar in their, in their bottom line. The 2030 timeframe is where the 2011 report ended, and that's roughly equivalent on a volume basis to 2035 in the million ton report. Um, it's only the only difference in, in between these two is about 20,000 tons, which is not really uh, noticeable when you're talking about billions of tons. Uh, the differences are in currently used. So interestingly, in our 2016 report, we had about 11 percent increase in the currently used biomass number, and with energy crops, we're about 19 percent less in the 2016 report than we were in the 2011 report. So little or not, um, the, the five years between the two reports did not see that that uptick in energy crop production that we were anticipating was going to happen when we put out the 2011 report. There were also quite a lot um, more waste feedstocks in the 2016 report than the 2011. But forestry, really incredibly similar across the two scenarios. You can see here across the top, I have a base case scenario. That's more of a conservative yield improvement year over year. Whereas in 2016, um, high yield and um, BT2, which is our 2011 report, high yield, we're, we're um, assuming a, a much more aggressive um, yield, year over year yield improvement in a 2 to 3% year increase. So now I'll just walk you through one of the supply curves to give you a sense. So this is our, um, our currently used biomass um, assessment. You can see here it's 365 million tons um, estimated out from 2017 onward. Then we add on top of that our waste resources, pretty consistent out to 2040. Forest land resources, same here. Agricultural residues, taking more advantage of the agricultural residues as we go out to 2040. 
energy crops. This is really where a lot of the action happens. So thinking back to that word cloud where we have those, those energy crops, we are estimating through this resource assessment that there is going to be a greater demand and market pull for, um, for energy crops as we move out into the future. So the, the production of biomass from energy crops will be much more significant in 2040 than it is today, which is uh, almost negligible. So we're going up to about 160 million, million dry tons of switchgrass, 160 million dry tons of cannabis, 45 um, um, million dry tons of poplar, 25 of willow, and, and so on. So these two scenarios that I've circled here, the 2017 as well as the 2040, these are the two scenarios that are going to be part of our volume two analysis, um, looking at the environmental I will again do this and I go back and forth just so you can see. So this is base case and then the high yield. So looking at year over year yield improvements, you can see here how, how the changes are, are demonstrated looking at a 2040 time frame. The high yield case will also be a scenario of volume two. So you can see from these two maps that the supply is really varying spatially as well as temporally. We're not here over here. Um, just increasing the amount of biomass. The biomass is actually um, moving to different parts of the country, so different regions of the country are showing more and more of an increase in biomass. Um, the, the South Central region really shows a, a tremendous increase in their the biomass potential um, as we go out to 2040. Now we've been talking a lot about potential, so I thought I'd dig into that a little bit just to make sure that you, um, you understand. So there's really resource potential, which is uh, the physical constraints, um, then you have technical potential, so is there already land use there that you wouldn't be able to grow biomass on? Um, uh, topographic constraints, you don't want to grow biomass in certain slopes, the slope is too steep, you wouldn't uh, want to grow biomass in that region. Economic potential, so to give in the technology cost, what is the um, uh, ability to um, access the biomass, you pay more for it, you're create more of a demand for the biomass, and then market potential. So this is market potential is reliant on policies and regulations and investor um, activity. The Billion Report doesn't touch uh, market potential. It is uh, agnostic in that way. These two, uh, these three analyses that the Bioenergy Technologies Office has put out really focus on economic and technical potential um, for biomass. So in order to, to realize this billion ton vision, we're going to need to see uh, both supply push and market pull. So let me tell you what I mean by that. You can see in, in 20, uh, 2015 out to 2040, we have max in the U.S. at a given price point. And these are um, really our ability to um, increase the amount of biomass at a given price point is really reliant upon our um, technology improvement, yield improvement, um, something that's going to increase the, the amount of supply that you can access at a given price in the, in the first row here, $30 a dry ton. Another way to increase the amount of, uh, of biomass that's available is to add value to that biomass so people will pay more money for it. That's really called market pull. So when that biomass can be used to produce a higher value co-product, people will pay more money uh, for that biomass. So be 
you can see here, down in the, um, the lower right corner, that is our billions of vision. It requires both a supply push, so investing in research and development, crop improvement, uh, best management practices, really increasing that supply, and also a market pull, um, creating, adding inherent value to that biomass demand from other markets, um, high value co-products, and so on. All are needed um, if we want to realize the full national so key conclusions um, from volume one, and then I will, I will stop there, having given the hook. Um, we have potential for more than a billion tons of biomass um, as early as 23, um, but we, up to 2040, you know, more and more and more um, uh, you know, can be added and realize yield improvements and so on. Um, we need to be identified new uh, insights into accessing biomass, advanced uh, supply systems that could be developed to make it less expensive to move the biomass to the refinery. Um, about half of our potential biomass that we identified can be produced and delivered at less than $84 a dry ton. So that's roughly equivalent to a $3 a gallon of gasoline equivalent, which is our, our goal within, within our office to develop technologies for recyclable. So the feedstock portion of that is, is about $84 a dry ton. Uh, forest resources, regionally specific, um, algae, a lot of potential, but also very expensive. So we need to um, uh, have resources, research, as well as technology development to bring down the cost of, um, of algal production in order to realize that potential. And of course, the supply is really contingent on how much um, people are willing to pay for it. Um, the more we, uh, people are willing to pay, the more biomass we need. So I will just stop there. We have more time, but we can go a little deeper in the volume too. Thank you. Sure, thank you for this. Yeah, it's sort of difficult to summarize a over 454 in about 20 minutes. So that 3,000 foot view is very appreciated. It's really interesting to hear about other microbes in the feed stocks. In terms of other environmental services that the sea stock could potentially provide as well. So, we're going to switch gears now. Um, we're going to hear from Dr. Gallery Reedy, and she can discuss a little more on the building fund vision and how the report that Allison has discussed with us kind of fosters and forwards the vision. So, Dr. Reedy is the Deputy Director for the Bioenergy Technology Office within the Department of Energy. Dr. Reed holds a PhD in biochemistry from Georgetown University and has been working with biofuels and bioeconomy for 23 years. She currently splits her time between the DOE and the USDA senior and acts as USDA senior advisor for bioenergy in the Office of Fisheries Scientist. Through this role, she's helping to build stronger collaboration between US, USDA and DOE in furthering the goal of creating national
to the Office of the Chief Scientist over at USDA. That actually was a job share, if you will, like a job switch. I went over to USDA to help build a better relationship there between USDA and, and DOE. And Harry went over to DOE to do exactly the same thing. So we spent the last year really doing each other's jobs, learning more about each other's agencies. And I think it's really led to a, a stronger relationship between our two agencies, which I hope we'll be able to show you through the next set of slides. So um, I'm going to be describing uh, a little bit more about what the bioeconomy initiative, the bioeconomy vision really is, and what, what it is that we're trying to do. So in a, in a report that was commissioned by USDA in July 2014, which was entitled Why Bio-Based Opportunities in the Emerging Bioeconomy, the bioeconomy was defined as a global industrial transition to a sustainably utilizing renewable aquatic and terrestrial biomass resources for the production of energy, intermediates, and final products that would ultimately have economic, environmental, social, and national security benefits. The report goes on to really describe a need for continued investment from the various agencies involved in developing a bio-based infrastructure that will ensure that the economics of the bio-based feedstocks are competitive with existing petroleum-based feedstocks. In a report then to Congress that followed in May 2015, which was entitled An Economic Impact Analysis of the U.S. Bio-Based Products Industries, we see an examination and quantification of the effects of the U.S. bio-based products industry on economics and jobs. And essentially what that report states is that in 2013 alone, America's existing bio-based industry already contributed 4 million jobs and $369 billion to our economy. The report findings include estimates that for each job that is directly tied to bio-based products industry, there's an additional 1.64 jobs generated in other sectors of the economy. So what that means is if we had 1.5 million jobs directly tied to the bio-based industry in 2013, we had 1.1 million indirect jobs in related industries, and more importantly, another 1.4 million jobs, which are called induced jobs, and those are uh, related to the purchase of the goods and services basically being produced through this bio-based industry. Further, the study reports that a minimum of 300 million gallons of petroleum is replaced already by this existing bio-based industry. And that's like taking 200,000 cars off the road each year. So clearly, we have a bioeconomy of sorts. Um, the use of these biomass resources is already supporting our nation's economy. And yet we know, based on what Allison just presented, that there's so much more that we could be doing with the resources that we have. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, when we're trying to develop or enhance a bioeconomy, is really, is there going to be enough supply of biomass? What is the resource we're dealing with here? And will it be enough to meet the research and development needs that will displace significant amounts of products and fuels and attract a major investment from the private sector? And of course, we believe the initial answer is yes. From the 2005 billion ton study, where we first saw that there was the potential for a billion tons of biomass, through 2011, where the study goes on to add costs to that biomass and really indicates to us what might be available at what cost structure, we feel firmly that there is a billion tons of biomass resource available 
simply to turn into fuels and bio-based chemicals while not impacting the existing markets for food, feed, and fiber. So overall, this confirms our desire to move forward with an enhanced bioeconomy. Okay, so this graphic, I'm going to go over these quickly because you've seen a lot of biomass stuff, but, but this is just used to help bring that point home. Based on the 2011 data, this uh, first graphic shows what was essentially available at about $80 a dry time in 2012. Okay, using the data and the analyses of the 2011 going into study. And as you can see, there are some strong uh, scenarios in the Midwest, of course, where you might expect a lot of biomass to be produced, but also in the Northeast and the Northwest, where we have a lot of woody biomass available that could be converted into uh, various products. In this next slide, and this really is the crutch of, of, of Allison's presentation, we see quite a bit more when we take projections out to 2030, and we actually change the cost to $60 a dry ton. This, again, is still based on the 2011 analysis. We are working towards um, you know, updating these charts for the 2016 analysis, but it further confirms for us, um, as Allison pointed out, that there's quite a bit of biomass in that it impacts many, many regions of the country. So this is really a national bioeconomy effort that we're working towards based on the resource. So who really is behind this bioeconomy enhancement, this vision, this initiative that we're talking about? Well, the Biomass Research and Development Board is an interagency board that was created through the enactment of the Biomass Research and Development Act of 2000, which was meant to coordinate the programs within and among departments and agencies of the federal government for the purpose of promoting the use of bio-based industrial products by, one, maximizing the benefits derived from federal grants and assistance, and two, bringing coherence to the federal strategic planning. The board is co-chaired by senior officials of the U.S. Department of Energy, as well as uh, the Department of Agriculture. And it does consist of several uh, other agencies and senior decision makers. These agencies include Transportation, Department of Interior, Defense, EPA, NSF, and of course the Office of Science and Technology Policy within the Executive Office of the President. It has a very diverse membership. Uh, but the board facilitates the coordination among these federal, federal government agencies so that they can have a positive impact on the level of research, development, deployment of biofuels and life products. Okay. So, the first product of this uh, Biomass Research and Development Board activity was entitled the Federal Activities Report on the Bioeconomy. And this was uh, published in February and is now available on our website. Um, but this report was, was prepared to emphasize the significant potential of taking our existing bioeconomy and really growing it into a stronger, more, uh, more influential activity through an increased production of biofuels, bioproducts, and biopower. It was intended to really educate the public on the wide-ranging and already existing federally funded activities underway through the agencies that I just mentioned. And these activities cover things like research and development, as well as demonstration and end-use market activities that help to enhance the end-use markets. The agencies are focused on ensuring, of course, that this is a sustainable effort. So sustainability is a key impact within the bioeconomy uh, federal activities report. Um, and there's careful attention being paid across the various agencies to things like greenhouse gas reduction, as well as water and soil quality. 
But what's important as well within this, this document is that it introduces a vision for the future. This recognizes that there is a lot more to do, but that if we can accelerate and coordinate our activities better, we could actually triple the size of today's bioeconomy. Here are uh, the vision and the goal statements as they're uh, crafted in the document. The goal of this initiative is really to concentrate and remove the barriers that still stand in our way to really developing the billion tons of biomass that Allison described to you so that we can do this cost-effectively and sustainably and build our economy around those factors. We take a look at the integrated supply chain all the way from feedstocks through to the end products and look at those things that will be accepted into the market and maximize the environmental, economic, and social benefits to the nation. And here is the vision as described in the Federal Activities Report. I'm really going to stop and not spend any time on this, even though it's probably the most interesting slide in my entire collection, because this is the subject of the next speaker, Carrie's uh, presentation. Okay. So I'm just teasing you a little about that one. The FAR actually does uh, allow the reader to take a look at where the various agencies have activities. And as you can see from uh, the dots across this uh, graphic, there are um, you know, various areas where collaboration between agencies makes a lot of sense. Certainly, you don't want everyone doing feedstock supply work to be doing it in a vacuum. So this report helps focus the, the public's attention and decision-making attention on where we need to collaborate more. Um, and so that report was published in February, as I mentioned. Um, but we didn't stop there. So we took that vision, we took it out to the public, and we uh, crafted a number of listening sessions with stakeholder communities. We held five different listening sessions to hit multiple different stakeholder groups. We uh, met CEOs and entrepreneurs from industry at the Advanced Bioeconomy Leadership Conference. We went to the International Biomass Conference and Expo in Charlotte, where we talked to feedstock and logistics suppliers. We went to BioWorld Congress, where we talked to leaders in the industrial biotechnology area. And we went to the 38th Symposium for Biotechnology on Fuels and Chemicals, where we really focused in on the research community, including academia. And in, to ensure we didn't miss anybody, we held a webinar, so that anybody who didn't get to one of those venues could certainly um, add to our listening sessions and help us understand better what we were trying to do. These sessions were set to really gauge the state of the technology. We know a lot about what's going on in the bioeconomy, but we recognize that the stakeholders know even more, and we wanted to hear where they felt the bioeconomy was, and what was missing, where were the gaps, and, and what were the challenges they were facing on a day-to-day -day basis. We gathered this data in a number of technical barrier areas, and this is just an example for you to take a look at, where we did impact and um, likelihood analysis, basically to enable us to prioritize real actions that we could take, in order to overcome the challenges and barriers that we face. The document itself is not quite ready for publication. We had hoped to publish it last week, but it's going to be final review and concurrence, and it will be available in the next week or so. So we want you to take um, the time to come to our website and look for that document and see what is it we're really trying to um, overcome here. Uh, but it is the second in a series of three documents with the third document being the true action plan. This is where the federal agencies will take all of that data provided by you as well as other stakeholders in our, um, in our arena 
and convert it into real actions that the agency should be taking. We're also working with the states. I skipped over that slide briefly, but we're, we're trying to engage the states and the regions to actually make commitments as well in supporting this uh, by the kind vision so that ultimately, in the end, we can be successful. So I will leave you with a thank you, and these are the people uh, in this room who are involved with that, but there are many, many more. So thank you. Biomass, 
what are we going to do? Uh, but what I do want to reiterate, and, and Valerie said this as well, is that we're looking at the incremental use of biomass, something above and beyond our food use, our feed use, and some of our industrial use that goes into these food and feed areas. So we're looking at biomass that's not really competing with food. Okay, so that's very important to understand. And we're also looking at producing this biomass in a sustainable fashion. Two key points that you know, we can't possibly overemphasize. Okay, so when we look at feed size, we're looking at ag residues, forest residues, and that So we're looking at basically our, our feedstock classes are ag residues, forest residues, energy crops, waste resources, and action. Um, we're looking at biophysical characteristics and productivity and growth. Plants grow at different rates. You fertilize them, they grow faster. You water them, they grow faster. Uh, forest resources, land scenarios incorporated. And we're looking at land allocation as to what land are we growing things on, what land are we growing things on, what's shifting. Okay? And I want to point out, this is not indirect land uses. Allocating land that we have between different production alternatives. Okay, and then as Allison said in hers, uh, we're looking at the roadside uh, uh, delivery of uh, biomass based on supply curves. And we're also considering logistics and transportation costs to the biorefineries or the integrated biorefineries. One thing, uh, any analysis contains specific sets of assumptions. So, uh, I'll get into that a little bit. But the other thing I want to point out, this analysis is not a predictive analysis. It's not really a behavioral type analysis. It doesn't look at some of the markets in depth as you trade off energy uses between natural gas or gasoline or ethanol or any type of biofuel. But it is an illustrative. It's meant to be illustrative. If we use this biomass in this way, these technologies, in these energy markets, this is what we expect. Okay? So, uh, the tools that we use, like Allison, we rely on a lot of existing data. We couldn't possibly generate it. We relied on USDA, we relied on Energy Information Administration. We relied on some of the technology and conversion work that uh, is done in the field office. Uh, landfill methane numbers. I mean, you can uh, read those numbers as well as I can, or read those sources as well as I can. And also, we rely on a number of models. But we aggregated all this information into a fairly massive spreadsheet that's, and it's, it's really sort of an accounting model that we've generated here, but we rely on policies, which is uh, the model used to generate county level supply curves for biomass. Uh, forcing model, which looks at alternative uh, forestry uh, utilization, logistics model, uh, and you know we prepared this analysis. One thing I would like to point out is, is that we did develop a manuscript that we sent to a journal, and that journal is uh, the Bioproducts, I'm sorry, Biofuel Bioproducts, Biorefining Journal. Uh, we're waiting to hear back from them. We expect to have an answer on the uh, journal that is. Uh, or journal uh, publication in the next week or two. But again, what we try to do is start with current data. We try to make it as consistent as possible as we look across various sectors and uh, utilize our modeling capabilities or capacity, if you will, to 
generate something that would do to derive an R analysis. So, next slide. If we look at uh, our expanded uh, analysis, this model also allows us to do some sensitivity analysis. But what I've shown you here in that map slide is, is just one analysis. But we're basically starting with our current year of 2014. We have a business as usual case. The business as usual is $40 per ton. Allison's baseline, a reference uh, case in the billion ton study, is 60. So that's what we use as our billion ton availability. We're looking at the same price that Allison is referring to in a billion ton update. Okay. Uh, product distribution, chemicals, fuels, wood pellets, heat and power. And under the fuels, we have aviation fuel, diesel, we have gasoline. Uh, and this is a little more detail, but what we're looking at are the types of feedstocks that we're using. This is the pointer. Okay, so here this top line, that doesn't show up very well. But in your handout, hopefully you can see it, those first five or six uh, feedstocks are agricultural based. You'll see corn grain. And you see that little blue line, and that's really our business as usual case. And 125.2 million metric ton, million tons of corn equals about 5 billion bushels. And that's currently what we're using, about 5 billion bushels in production. These numbers here uh, to the right of the bars, uh, 144, 144 uh, current. That's about how much uh, biomass that we're using. Uh, if we look at our business as usual, case with forty dollars a ton, we expect by twenty thirty that would rise to two hundred fourteen uh, million tons. And if we look at our uh, sixty dollar per ton, billion ton bioeconomy, it's three hundred seventy billion tons. So these numbers are, are here. Uh, the other thing I'd like to point out is if you drop down to the lower third of this chart, the lower quarter of the chart, energy crops and, and I got to that. Uh, energy crops and uh, algae are there. We currently don't really use energy crops to produce fuels or, or algae right now. So we're expecting that to come in in the future. As Allison said, energy crops are really expect to be gangbusters later in the, later in the, in the century, 24. Okay, on the output side, these are the outputs that we're looking at. The fuels, uh, again, you can see here what we're looking at is how uh, 50 million gallons of biofuels on a gasoline equivalent, ba gasoline equivalent basis, that's about 44 billion gallons. We're looking at 85 billion uh, kilowatt hours being generated. We're looking at cl uh, close to 50 billion tons of, uh, of bio-based products, including wood pellets and, and renewable chemicals and the like. So, again, we think uh, the benefits. Uh, and again, we can do different sensitivity analysis, but there's revenue gains, we have employment uh, numbers. Uh, you know, in our analysis, we think there's direct jobs created about a little over 1.1 billion or a million, yeah, million jobs using that multiplier, 1.64. You can do the math there. Uh, we're looking at greenhouse gas reductions of what we think are of the order of 400 million tons a year. Uh, also, we can look at land allocation and you know, consider uh, in, in uh, volume two and volume one of the billion ton study. What? Okay. Quick summary. Uh, this isn't predicted. This is what could be a potential with the allocation and the assumptions we make. 
We're um, um, looking at transitioning to a low carbon society or economy, if you will. We're looking at, uh, we're waiting to hear from the publisher about the, the article we submitted and we'll continue to work, work towards uh, the bioeconomy initiative, as, as Valerie pointed out. And these are just a number of the folks that have been involved in this work over the time. Uh, USDA, DOE, uh, EPA, the National Lab, the Forest Service, consultants, Department of Transportation. So there's been a lot of effort supporting this and bringing us to where we are now. So back to the headline news. Again, we're looking at reduction in greenhouse gases at 400 billion, 25% uh, market penetration in the fuels, which would include vehicle as well as jet, uh, bio-based products in the order of 50 billion pounds a year, job creation, economic, not to mention control development. With that, it was a quick, quick, quick round of Thank you. Part of the benefits of uh, developing the bioeconomy, we haven't really put 
a value to that, such as greenhouse gas reduction. We know it's an issue, we know it's a problem, but we haven't really put a good value to that. So I, I think there's some things that we need to, to um, assess as we move forward in, in looking at what the values of the benefits are. I just want to draw attention to the the real risks that um, that reside in um, in the biomass supply chains. I think that our our current um, uh, second generation and beyond biorefineries are are seeing firsthand um, that just because you build it doesn't mean that that it will come. And that's something that we have um, have really uh, come to appreciate through. Um, Watching these fire refineries come online is, is the, the tremendous challenges that, that exist when you look at feedstock variability, uh, trying to create a robust supply system that will give high quality um, and uh, low cost uh, feedstock to, to a conversion um, process. So there's a lot of research that still needs to be done around um, feedstock supply systems, stabilizing biomass, um, getting, getting the water out so that it's cheaper to move, um, and also making sure that the, the composition of it is, um, is uh, consistent and appropriate so that it can be, uh, can be converted. I think these are all challenges that are maybe underappreciated um, when uh, uh, companies decide to invest in, um, in the technology. They think they figure out the conversion technology and they're good to go, but there's a lot of challenges starting to be stopped in this as well. Great. I'm going to open it up to general questions. Um, we have one in the back here. Mm -hmm. um, when like, the technology for, like, advances far enough, like for like algae, which I believe you guys said was considered an, uh, an energy crop, um, like the difficulty of, of implementing uh, coastal uh, facilities, because people just don't want them, like either, like there's either, like it's, Urban areas would be like areas that would just accidentally, or not accidentally, would just be, they'd be protected so you can't build them there. Areas that are good, but they're in like popular areas, people don't want them there either because, you know, people use that area. What, what would, how would you go about in confronting issues like that? So maybe quickly repeat the question just for recording them. But the question is basically what are kind of some of the more social aspects in terms of recalcitrance or how do you deal with kind of perception and issues in that front? Sure, well algae is um, is great because it is incredibly diverse. It can grow in a lot of different conditions and really all you need for it is a, it's a lot of sunlight and, and some nutrients. And it can be grown in an open pond uh, type of environment, but it can also be grown in you know, closed system, photobioreactors, where you're actually growing biomass vertically in many cases. So we're, we're seeing there's tremendous potential for algae in areas that are not highly populated but do have a lot of sun, like the, um, the desert uh, southwest. Um, you know, they, they do have access to saline groundwater, there's of course lots and lots of sun, um, and uh, the, the potential to even use, use algae to clean up um, wastewater and is, is something that we're exploring within the bioenergy technologies office. So that's one way to get at some of the social aspects is to create a, you know, side value to, to, to putting in a bioenergy facility. It is cleaning up the salt and sea, for instance. You know, I know the state of California has some interest in looking at, at an algae facility to, to, 
to address that, that tremendous environmental issue that they're facing, or municipal wastewater. We have some projects there where they're harvesting um, algae to, to convert to, to biofuels. So that's, I think that that's one way to approach it. Look at production systems that have some side benefits as well. And I'll just add uh, that we, uh, I brought it up in our slide that we're beginning to work with the states and the regions at what they can be doing at their level to help promote this industry because really having an, uh, a, a state that is going to take away some of the barriers of siting a facility, permitting, bringing it along because of the, the economic value to that state can go a long way in terms of that public perception. But I wanted to point out a barrier we didn't mention that really came through loud and clear in the listening sessions, and that really is public perception. Um, we get a lot of bad rap through miscommunication of data um, from much larger uh, entities than ourselves who have the funding to put out commercials uh, that can mislead the public. And so a lot of people look at what we're trying to do as really negative to the environment. So that's an, an aspect that we really need to tackle in terms of getting the real data out there in ways that people can quickly understand it and, and see the benefits of these things for their communities. So that's another way to help pave the way to, to welcoming these things into communities. Great. Um, in the back here, blue shirt and tie. I'm Dusty Orwin, Senior Counsel with Partnership for Policy Integrity. We're a nonprofit based in Western Massachusetts and worked for several years on bioenergy. And we were concerned about the statement of the greenhouse gas benefits generally for biopower in this analysis. In light of our work on bioenergy, just to make it clear, we regard as the use of biological materials for electric generation as opposed to biofuels, uh, use of biological materials for liquid fuel. And our concern uh, specifically is, is that the, the analysis envisions a significant ramp up in forest harvesting. And yet there have been a number of studies over the past several years showing that when you burn wood for electricity, which is the most common source of bioenergy, you have a significant increase in carbon dioxide pollution. And it takes decades for new forest growth to sequester those emissions. And you're probably familiar with the Massachusetts study, the Manomet study, uh, which found this basic trend, and based on that, the state ended subsidies to commercial-scale bioenergy. Um, Washington, D.C. has done the same thing. So uh, I was wondering, what is the basis for the statement that generally there's going to be greenhouse gas emission benefits in light of these studies about bioenergy, um, and if you're going to uh, address that in a future paper? Sure. So the question is on first-year greenhouse gases and in terms of woody biomass um, and looking at sort of the, the data that went into the report on that. Sure. Well, I, I actually do have a slide if you want to pull it up, but you could um, go sustainable constraints in PT16 forestry. I'm going to talk you through a little bit. I think that there may have been a, a misunderstanding. So with, within the billion ton 2016, we actually did not assume that we were going to be harvesting more than an, an annual growth rate. We, we put in a lot of uh, constraints around the forestry uh, resources, um, building no roads, only residue removal um, uh, at an acceptable rate, um, uh, no removing of biomass in wet areas to make sure there wasn't soil compaction, um, 
best management practices were assumed. Uh, so there, there would not be, in, in this uh, resource potential um, analysis, there, there wasn't harvesting that was exceeding any, any annual growth rate. Um, and of course that is uh, including protection of any kind of forested areas, national parks, roadless areas, anything, anything like that. So I don't, um, I don't think that we, um, we would be assuming that there would be you know, clear cutting beyond an annual growth rate, um, which seemed to be what you were implying. Uh, well, not necessarily. I, I, can, um, I can show you a, a recent letter that was sent to Congress by some Oregon State professors who said that even if your cutting does exceed the growth rate, you can still have a, an increase in carbon pollution in the atmosphere versus what would happen if we let trees stand and not harvest them for the climate. Sure. I mean, we work really, really closely with um, the Forest Service and professional foresters to make sure that um, that our assumptions around, uh, particularly forested areas and timberlands, were, were appropriate. Um, and so I, I mean, I feel uh, fairly confident that we that we were not um, over overstating when we said uh, we talked about greenhouse gas um, reduction. So. Yeah, I, I would just add it. I went through it quickly, but if you look at the slide that I that I had up there, it, I think it was my ninth slide on the Visa Delaware. Okay, but, but long story short, I mean we're not looking at clear cutting or, or, or harvesting a lot of uh, woody biomass. We're relying primarily on woody residues, if you will. So, and that coupled with the fact that we're looking at advanced technologies for the use reduces, you know, in our opinion, the greenhouse gas uh, issue that, that uh, you, you, you raised. And our, our total number there in terms of the 400 million gap or 400 million coming up reduction in greenhouse gas, it's not just from the, from the, the way biomass, it's, it's fuel use as well as biobased types. Volume 2. 
Um, so I can't give you one number for the whole billion tons, um, but generally we use numbers around one gallon of water consumed per gallon of fuel produced uh, for, a, for a corn uh, ethanol facility, and then four, four gallons of water consumed per gallon of ethanol produced um, for an irrigated situation. Now that is the current state, and we're, we're developing new technologies to really reduce um, the, the consumption of, of water to produce, you know, biofuels. So most of that is is taking place within the, the conversion uh, process, unless you're looking at an irrigated um, feedstock, which we, for for the, the billion ton study, we did not assume any of the, the bioenergy feedstocks were irrigated. Past establishment. Yeah, I, I was only going to then reiterate or state that it, if you're if you're irrigating a crop, it's not going to go to fuel production, it's going to go to food production. Uh, secondly, I mean, USDA has a number of programs, particularly in our natural resource conservation services and some of our, our research agencies as well, that are looking at, at you, know, you know, more efficient use of water. And, and so I, I think, you know, the, the, the development of best management practices, additional modifications or improvements in the seed stock, et cetera, or, you know, um, sort of requires this water in corn. So I think some of these switching in effect Technologies being uh, uh, adapted for other crops and, and other bottlenecks actually uh, will help to, to reduce or at least um, not make it go away, but, but help with the water system. And I'm just going to add one last thing. Um, you may have heard of the food, energy, water taxes, often called few, and that's really uh, a, a look at how these things interrelate with each other because we, we can't produce more biomass when we might be facing a global food crisis. We have to consider what does that mean in terms of energy use and what does that mean in terms of water. And NSF has uh, really taken kind of a, a, a charge and lead at this uh, in developing some innovative research and development activities and has brought agencies together as well as uh, Department of Energy under the Energy Water Nexus concept that our secretary Promotes. So these are, are relatively new focus areas in which there'll be a lot more research and development in the next you know, couple of years to, to get to those questions and answers. And I believe that climate change is going to be a significant focus of volume too. Is that, is that correct? Well, actually, it, within volume one, we had to include some, some climate trending to be able to evaluate what potential yields might be into the future. But yes, there will be a chapter in volume two uh, dedicated to, to climate. Other questions in the structure? Yeah. Uh, my name is Jad. Very good guys presented some good information on that. One of the things I noted was, uh, especially looking at the forecast, the, the, the main emphasis is on energy crops, and they are the key change makers, the game changers, as we look to the, to the, to the future. I wanted to ask is, what stopped us from, you know, going there so far? What, what stopped us from, uh, you know, investing more in energy crop production till 2016? Uh, so the question is on what are some of the challenges in terms of energy crops, and I also think um, for the uninitiated, maybe we're also just a brief explanation of what, what do we mean when we say energy crops? Um, so if you want to answer that question, Well, you know, we've, we've identified certain crops as, as energy, like energy cane, and Santos, and Jotropa. And, you know, it's really a, a chicken egg argument right now, in my opinion, because we don't have the, the facilities in place that are really fully or demanding those 
those energy crops for sale, mostly for advanced fuel production. Secondly, the economics, particularly with the, the relatively high food prices or, or crop prices, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, you know, just made it much more difficult for a farmer to say, I want to take a chance on producing jatropha or you know, perennial grasses or something that's other than a, a well-defined market. And so, you know, we've got, you know, Allison in her, in her presentation, she talked about the demand side. We need that demand holds for the feedstocks as well as, as, as the end use markets. And so right now, we're just going at it. So it's constant farmers. Farmers aren't stupid. They're going to produce what they can, can produce to make, make a profit. Okay, great. And I, there is a program at USDA by most practices concerned through the 2014 farm bill, but it is a very small program. And it's to aid farmers in growing these energy crops that can not only be a biomass, but a biomass, but a seaside that can provide these local environmental benefits. Um, on the end of the question. Thank you. I remember your UNESCO task force and I have two questions. When you say success is contingent upon developing feedstock supplies, lowering production costs, and enhancing the value of bioeconomic products, the question is have you studied or do you continue to study the impact that fertilizer on this Second question, uh, I will study also possibilities for international cooperation, in particular for African countries and in developing countries. Okay, so it's a two-part question. The first part is kind of are you planning on looking at the impact of fertilizer going out, and then also are you looking at potential international co cooperation, particularly with developing countries? Okay, I, I think in our basic research programs at USDA, we are always looking at ways to improve productivity, ways to improve the quality, ways to, to uh, or, or mismanagement practices. And so, so I think we're always considering fertilizer as it impacts productivity. Now, in, in our analysis here, we've assumed that that continued, well, USDA's baseline, the productivity gains are expected to continue for the next and and um, and nine. Okay, so implicitly we are including you know the impact of fertilizers to support some of these. You know um, where where we may see some some breakthroughs is that is that maybe in the fertilizer technology that we're looking at in terms of how well does it help corn or soybeans or or any other food crop? How can that be applied to some of these energy crops or or other types of biomass that we're considering? You know, once again, I mean, once the value of these other feedstocks that we're talking about starts to be realized, then you start to attract research dollars, you start to, you know, lots of things happen. Uh, the second part of your question, international cooperation or collaboration, I think that's underway. Uh, I believe that there are, I, I just came back from a conference in Europe, and one of the presenters indicated that globally, I think there are like something in the order of 25 countries globally, relatively small given the total number of countries in, in the world, but that have some type of bioeconomy program underway. Without a doubt, I think collaboration will begin to emerge and become more important. In some respects, with existing organizations, um, the UN, FAO, uh, the, the Global Biofuels 
you know, the partnership I believe is one. Some of that collaboration, cooperation, is everything. I, I, I do a lot of work with the OEC in their, their um, science and technology policy. We're talking bioeconomy there, and that's you know a goal for them. So yes, I do think it's, it's, it's happening. Uh, the benefits, I'm sure there's collaboration and coordination going on, uh, and it's helping. I think, but you know we're we're really at the early stage, and that's why. Yeah, fertilizer um, utilization and dedicated energy crop production is an open area where, where more research is needed. I mentioned the regional open stock partnership program that was, I could say, seven years of 100 field trials. A lot of that work was trying to um, identify what are the best management practices for these crops. How do we make sure that any chemicals that are being applied are, are being fully utilized by the crops? Because any, anything that runs off is as environmental consequences, but it also is lost money, you know, and we want to make these, um, these bioenergy crop production um, systems cost effective. Um, so I strongly encourage you, um, if you're interested in learning more about the Regional Feedstock Partnership Program, um, join our listserv, bioenergy.energy.gov, and you'll get an email hopefully in the next week or two with the uh, summary report. It includes all the information about the trials, the different application rates, Erosion and what the what the kind of synthesis of, of that work was. Great. Other questions in the middle here. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the uh, the decision to exclude food waste and consumer waste from the the economy? So the question is on food waste and uh, uh, waste, organic waste, things like that. Well, I'm going to say it's not completely excluded. It, it's not in the billion ton update as far as available biomass, but in the last maybe five years or so, the Department of Energy has been working on a wet waste technology scenario, which looks at the various wastes that are available. They're usually in smaller quantities and, and often tied to things like food and industrial waste that's being produced. Uh, by existing industries as well as wastewater treatment facilities and those types of waste sources. Um, and the technologies for conversion are a little bit different, but there have been some breakthrough technologies in wet waste conversion that enables us to reduce the energy inputs to dry the waste so that it could be utilized um, as part of the, the process stream. So while they're not a very large impact type of a feedstock, I do believe they will be part of a mix in various uh, where facilities are sited if we're able to uh, overcome some of the technical barriers to that very wet waste. So food, food processing waste was included. Um, yes, it was. Um, I, I had to go back and check and make sure fats, oils, and greases, um, rice, rice straw, yard trimmings, citrus and non-citrus residues, bagasse, cotton gin trash, lots of different types of waste were included. And then of course construction and demolition waste. Um, so any, any waste resources that really emerge in, in high concentration urban areas, and that's really where you're going to see um, if you dig into the report in the waste chapter, um, a, a potential for these, these waste resources. Yeah, I, I just wanted to get a point of clarification. The fact that we, we say we're, we're looking at incremental biomass production, so we're not saying that food waste, I mean, after the fact that it's been, you know, an ag commodity that process and, 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 and whatever it was to utilize discarded, 
that, that waste is eligible to be stocked, but we're not taking from the productive capacity of U.S. agriculture to specifically divert that, that land, say, to, to uh, producing feedstock that's not, produce, not producing something that we want to produce. There are a lot of ways that we have to deal with in this country, um, and I think it's going to be interesting in the next couple of years looking at the developments of renewable natural gas and dealing with organic waste and tippage fees and how all this is developing at this really the state level right now. Um, more questions in the comments. Julie. Yes, hi. My name is Julie Tucker from the U.S. Forest Service. I'm the National Lead for Renewable Wood Energy. And this report's fabulous for a lot of reasons. It gives you an idea of generally the amount of residue that's out there. And in our agency, um, we, we see a fabulous opportunity to have markets use the waste that we don't have any markets for. And for example, uh, when we do forest treatments, we have so much residue. And it typically, especially out west, is burned, just burned. There's no market for it, or it's landfill. And um, what a great opportunity to generate local heating, cooling electricity and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, especially from the uh, long-term perspective, and permanently for facilities that then switch over to wood energy to get us off of fossil fuel. And so what our challenge is, is that, you know, when I look at the tonnage, the dollars per ton that you list, in some markets it's a lot, you, you can't sell uh, wood for you know residues. I'm not talking about sawtan. I'm talking about the waste wood for you know any more than thirty or forty dollars a ton. So what that means is there isn't a market, and it becomes very expensive for us to dispose of this. And it's very hard because it, to burn all of it is very difficult. You can only burn at certain times of the year and, and whatnot. And so what we need is really a, a deeper analysis where there are the better markets. For us to focus because we're not, you know, we're the Forest Service, not you know, the energy agency. And so I'm wondering if the Department of Energy, after looking at this report, is going to be doing a deeper dig and analysis, looking at the real market opportunities so that we can have recommendations on where to focus our energies, where there are markets, and, and where the, the end users, like for example, this doesn't focus as much on the end users, it focuses more on the supply that's available. So an analysis that looks at the end users, the supply, where that intersects, and where those opportunities are, and the recommendations for opportunities. Um, we'd love to see something like that. So I'm wondering, is there a discussion about that sort of analysis as a follow-up to this report? And so the question is sort of on looking at some of the waste streams, particularly from forest tree thinning operations, and how it's still cost prohibitive at those prices to utilize this waste. And if there's potential looking at development of end uses or particular markets for, for that's a great example that you know, could be other examples as well. Well, specifically to answer your question, not currently in our plan to look at a specific waste like that and find markets for it. In fact, to listen to the leadership within our program, we don't pick winners. The market picks winners. What we do is we reduce the cost of technologies. Uh, we work towards things that have a large national impact first, and then uh, worry a little bit more about the state and regional level secondarily. So for instance, we would be looking at conversion technologies and R&D looking at conversion 
conversion technologies to take wood, where it makes sense, it'll probably be a pyrolysis type technology to produce an oil that could then displace maybe petroleum at the crude stage, go into possibly home heating oil, or into diesel or jet fuel streams. So that's a national impact that could take any wood, whether it's the residues or something coming from a more um, formal operation in that regard. Or also taking blended feedstocks that include the residues as well as other feedstocks from the region and, and bring them in. So again, our, fo our focus right now is on extremely high impact technologies. Uh, we want to have a suite of those technologies so that the market and those uh, financial Risk takers will have something that they could look at um, to be to enable. So they'll look at a region. We get we get groups all the time that come in and they say they've cited a facility that includes things like ensuring that the state allows for what they're trying to do, that the biomass resources that are available to them are, are available in enough quantity and, and able to be renewed over and over again um, for a 30-year life cycle for the facility. Those types of things. So right now, that's what we're focused on. But we are working with. We work often with states and regions to talk about more targeted issues like that. For instance, we're going up into the main um, area in the next month or so to look at the paper and pulp industry and what's going on there and ways that we can capitalize on what's happening with their um, that's obviously a declining market, and there are waste, uh, woody streams coming in that are already well established. Can we help build that into a biomass market? That's the kind of thing we do on a more regional level. So I'm not saying we'll never get to the particular issue you bring up, but right now it's national impact technologies. So, so just to clarify, so are you saying basically for DOE to change the direction? Um, and not be only focused on cutting edge technologies, because they're important and needed. But from what we see, conventional technology right now that's been around for a long time, that Europe's been using, Europe is light years ahead of us, does it take a congressional directive to redirect DOE? I'm just trying to understand, to, you need more of a mandate from Congress to we say not, that it's not the conventional? We do not focus on conventional technology development in any way. But that's not to say that the feedstocks that Allison and her team are working on wouldn't go to that market first because that's the one that exists. But we're not going to do anything to, do, to further develop those technologies. And if you look at our um, current pilot and demonstration request for proposals, those technologies would be uh, non-responsive. Yeah, I didn't mean developing technologies. I mean more analyses to take advantage of those markets and technologies. That's what I mean. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Well, I, 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 I just like it, and um, I, don't, I don't think, you know, Valerie's focus on what the current current work is, is, is fine, but as we look down the, down the road here, uh, maybe as near as, as December, I mean, our goal is to put together a, a strategy for how to develop and grow a bioeconomy, and, and what you point out, Julie, could be very well part of that strategy, but, you know, saying every we, we haven't done that analysis yet. That doesn't mean that it might not come down the road. Yeah, I think because, it's again, we, we probably know less or don't know what we don't know yet. So I think it's on this, this respect. I think it's a new area for us. I think an approach like that is in, in, incredibly appropriate for an interagency context like the Biomass R&D Board. So it's our mission within the Biology Technology Office is really about technology development. Um, now that being said, I think there are some technologies that can help with this um, stranded resource issue and the low um, low cost price that people are willing to pay for those residues. 
lot of the work we're doing with these stacks of client logistics may help to, um, to access that resource, to, to make it uh, cheaply dense and consistent in its composition such that a buyer economy would pay a little more for it and therefore it would be cost effective uh, to, to build a facility around utilizing that. Um, but yeah, that being said, I do think that that issue is something that we absolutely recognize. There is an interagency biomass utilization group, Woody Biomass Utilization Group, probably well familiar with, and I think as we move forward with the Biomass R&D Board's um, implementation plan of this vision, uh, that would be a good challenge for us to look at further. Great, unfortunately we are out of time. A lot of great questions, and it looks like a lot of great questions on sustainability, so everyone, we look forward to the volume two coming out later this year. Um, our business, the presentation for today and the video will be up on our website within the next 48 hours, so you can check that there. And, uh, and please join me.